if you cook and bake something in your house, there is no way you can only eat that. You have to share it with your <laughs> neighbors. That's how I grew up. And I will never be able to erase that. And I still go to my neighbors, next door neighbors, and I say, look, I made Noah's pudding. Would you like to share? And then I offered them. And the first time I gave it to them, they're like, oh, no, I'm fine. And then they started loving it and they came back to us for more. Hello and welcome to the Alien Chronicles, a weekly podcast about immigrant experiences. Today's guest is Maliki Ayan. Maliki is the New York correspondent for Bloomberg HT Television, where she provides in-depth coverage and analysis of major economic and business trends, including in-depth reporting on global corporations. She has interviewed numerous major investors, as well as top leaders in business, economics, and government. Additionally, Malike has her own company, Mel Strategies, which specializes in five key services, media relations, marketing, strategic counsel, crisis communications, and media training. And Malike is from Turkey. So I visited Turkey a few years back and I totally fell in love with it. Turkey, for those listeners who don't know, is a transcontinental nation. Turkey in many ways has diverse identity, which is reflected in its most distinctive landmarks like Hagia Sophia, with its majestic dome reflecting Roman architecture and blue mosque with its Islamic traditions. I was impressed with Turkey's hospitality, but to me, I saw Turkey through lens of a tourist or a visitor, which may be different from how Maliki saw it because she is a native. And I'm curious to find out whether our experiences, my very short experience and her experience are similar or different when it comes to Turkey. So without further delay, we will get right to it. Welcome, Maliki. So good to have you on my show. Thank you, Sadia. And by the way, I'm glad you could make it because I know you had mentioned that if there is a breaking news or if something happens, you won't be able to come. And I was freaking out. I was checking my phone every five minutes and I was like, oh, my God, I hope she makes it. And you did. So everything is good. We are here. So we'll jump right into it. Tell us about your childhood. While I was coming here, I was remembering those. They were sweet and very warm flashback memories. And uh, my childhood in Turkey was a little different than other Turkish children, maybe, and very similar to them as well, because I'm blonde. And the majority of Turkish population is not blonde or red-haired. If you went to Turkey, I'm sure you saw. I did, but it's surprising that you say that because growing up in Pakistan, everybody is obsessed with Turkey. I thought everybody in Turkey had like blonde hair. True. Now it is different. Now it's becoming more like a melting pot. Like in major metropolitan cities, I see it more and more. But back in my time with a platinum blonde hair, I felt like I sometimes didn't belong there because when I was walking in the Grand Bazaar I, with my brother, people were approaching me and my brother when I was in high school and they were speaking to me either in German or in English. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, because they were not used to that. And my brother was more uh, a little in the brunette side. So they thought he was my 
translator. But going back to even before then, before my high school years, I remember the Ramadans. They were amazing. There were many beautiful and funny memories too. In Turkey, we have these fresh bakeries and they make bread. Just bread, only bread. And in Turkey, it's a big thing. It's a, it's in the culture. I mean, food is almost like a spiritual festivity activity more than it's in the culture. It's it's a big thing. So just half hour or one hour before breaking the fast, my mom would send me to the bakery. We call it fırın. And then I would walk about 15-20 minutes to the bakery and I would grab that hot steaming bread and I would try to bring it home. I was, I, I can't forget this. This was so, so funny. I wanted to share with you because I remembered on my way in this cold sub-zero weather in New York that made me warm. So my mom told me, go buy bread. I went and I brought, bought it and I'm fasting. And this is me in middle school, I think, first year. And this is my like first uh, year of fasting. And I had that bread in my hand. Actually, I bought two. And I, you cannot put it in a plastic bag or any bag because it's hot. It's burning. So I'm going home and it is uh, summertime. And I forgot I was fasting. I finished almost all that loaf of oh, bread. Wow. <laughs> and I still didn't remember until I rang the bell and I saw my mother's face. She looked at me. She looked at the bread. And I'm like, Oh my God, with the bread in my mouth, I'm still chewing it and really savoring it. So she said, don't worry, it doesn't count. You're still fasting because you forgot. And I I was so scared. I thought all day's work was done. But then I was so relieved and I was so happy. And then half hour later, we broke our fast. It was amazing. There was nobody on the streets. Everybody was rushing to their families, to their iftar, prayer time, and also breaking the fast. Exciting time. That's one thing. Another thing is when my dad went to another city to work in a factory in the summertime, that was a beautiful town and in a village. We were in the village and I never saw cows and baby cows and the chicken because I was in the city. It was so such an impressive period of time for me. And I would spend my time in the garden of the mosques and they we would drink the water from there and the gardens were beautifully kept. And I remember those memories. They were very fond memories. And I enjoyed most of my childhood time over there. I really miss it. And I sometimes wish my kids had the same kind of experience. It's very different than even now in Turkey and now in New York. They are very similar now, all the metropolitan cities. But back then, we would play on the street without being scared of any stranger, anything. And then without even the supervision of our parents, we would play on the street and it was safe. We, I remember having balls and ropes in my hand with my friends, and I was only eight, nine, ten years old. And then all our mothers would call us to dinner and go, wash, it's time for dinner or lunch. And we were fearless. We were very happy and comfortable and content, in a way, on the streets. And now I don't remember one day when I let my children playing on on the street or in my backyard or in the front yard without me. So that's a huge difference. And also, we 
we're almost family with our neighbors. If we didn't have sugar, we would go and knock on the door of our neighbor. We would ask that their children would grow in our house and we would grow in theirs. It was like another sister or brother that I had. And it was very standard. It was very common. I had Armenian neighbors. I had Turkish uh, and Muslim neighbors. It was a melting pot, melting together, but very different. So, Maliki, when you said that you used to go to your neighbors' houses and their kids were like basically growing up in your house, and that must have impacted your outlook on life generally. And in what ways did it shape the person that you are now and your interactions with other people? I think my bringing up made me very warm and trustworthy <laughs> and in a, in a way that, you know, it's sometimes it's too much in, in, in New York or in, in the United States. So I don't mind watching my neighbor's babies and I don't, you know, mind also taking care of them or asking them, you know, you can always drop them off. But you have, you know, you're not a babysitter. You don't, you cannot ask. These these are differences. And but also, I lived here for almost 25 years, and I studied here. I worked here almost half of my adult years and age. And I also adopted that. My ex-husband used to call me a helicopter mom, paranoid mom, and also a helicopter mom. Because of all the things I read and then I educate myself, I became Americanized. That's what my Turkish friends are tell- calling me right now. You're more American than us. And going back to your childhood, what was the culture like at home? You grew up in a Muslim household, which has a lot of stereotypes. If if we were to talk to an average, say, American, they, they may have preconceived notions of how women are raised. And I would like to get your take on that and address some of the myths or maybe those um, preconceived notions that exist in America or in the Western world, they may be true. So I would like to get your perspective on that. Yeah, uh, that's a great question, actually. When I first came to America, in the, to the United States, I came to a host family. I was living there with them. And then I was also studying at night, completing my master's degree. And it happened like this. So I studied in Turkey. I went to college. And then I started working at Arthur Anderson. Back then, it was the top five auditing companies. And it was a great job. But I didn't think it was for me being an auditor, being an accountant. And I thought I needed more experience or more education. And I said, what should I do? I should learn more. I should go for further studies, further education. And where can I do that? Well, I can do it in Turkey. I can do it in America. America offers the best graduate schools, education. Why not apply? So I applied with a couple of my mentors' help, I mean, suggestion and advice. And then I got accepted at Rutgers, Rutgers University in Camden, and I said, okay, I guess it's time to go. But it was hard to leave. My parents, my family, my memories, my best friend in Turkey. Though I said, okay, I'm going to go study and then I'll come back. And I will figure out what I really want to do with my education, further education. But it turned out that, you know, you plan your life, but life plans you. I stayed lo- even longer. So while I was doing my master's here, I was studying with this family. And the first thing they asked me was why you're not wearing a headscarf? Because that was 
in their pre-notion. That was the notion. That was the stereotype that had uh, that they had in their head. And they said, so you're uh, also wearing jeans and you're wearing no headscarf. So are you not Turkish and Muslim? I said, no, I am. And I do practice. And, and then I come from a moderately, you know, religious family. And I do not have to wear a headscarf. That's not in the religion. It's the tradition. I tried to explain to them, and they were fascinated. The more they learned, the more they were educated. And then even, that was funny, they asked me, do they have refrigerators? Do they have <laughs> hair dryers in Turkey? I, when I, the more I explained to them, they, because they were not from New York, they were from somewhere in New Jersey, in remote little town, and they didn't know much about Turkey. So that was an, an interesting encountering with them. And going back to another the other question you had about how my bringing up affected me, and it's still affecting me, is to this day, if you cook and bake something in your house, there is no way you can only eat that. You have to share it with your <laughs> neighbors. That's how I grew up. And I will never be able to erase that. And I taught it to my kids too, because it's in me and I get such a big joy out of it. So it's almost a little selfish. I still go to my neighbors, next door neighbors, and I say, look, I made Noah's pudding. Look, I made this Turkish uh, mystic gum pudding. Would you like to share? And then I offered them and the first time I gave it to them, they're like, oh, no, I- I'm fine. And, and I said, no, no, it's my tradition. You try it, try it. If you don't like it, just, you know, don't eat it, but just try. And then they started loving it. And they come, they came back to us for more. So it became almost like a tradition to give food. Oh, my God. I wish I were your neighbor, <laughs> which I'm not. But but you've made two important points. One about, again, stereotypes uh, with regards to women. And the other one, which is about why immigrants come to the U.S. And there are a number of reasons why we come. Some of us come because we want to come. We choose to come as you came to acquire more education and you just wanted to experience the education system in the U.S. Some come to experience a job market in the U.S. They want to come and they come. And then there are other immigrants who are persecuted or who don't have any other options. So it's extremely important to make that distinction. There are immigrants like you and I who come here for education who want to just experience living in the most advanced nation in the world. But we are pretty comfortable in our lives back home as well. So when you came to the U.S., what was the biggest cultural shock? (laughs) There were interesting ones. For example, I knew I kind of had an idea because I had American friends that came to Turkey. But like anybody else, I thought everybody was going to look like Brad Pitt. I came here. I'm like, they look like Turkish people. They're, and then they, everybody says hi to you. They walk on the street. And because I didn't think that would be the norm. And that was the first shock, I think. And then the second one was in Turkey, we don't buy one apple. If you go to the bazaar, if you go to, even to the supermarket, you buy by kilogram, by pound, right? You don't buy one or two. And I, I found people buying one or two apples or tomatoes because it's 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 interesting it's different they buy as they need it in turkey we buy as we don't need or we we want and then that's the, that was in is the second one and also i loved the way uh, that was also another cultural shock people uh, there was such a privacy and you know in terms of their lives but also there was such a big respect out on the street 
and people said, you know, hi to you, even without knowing you and opening the doors. When I was in the city in Turkey, I mean, in New York, it's different too. I didn't have that. That was another one. Turkey is a very secular country. And it is, as I said earlier, it's culturally very diverse. If you look at present day Turkey, its principles are rooted in ideals of democracy and cultural diversity. So being from that secular country, did it help you ease into American culture? I think it was very easy for me, easier than my other friends from other countries because of, as you said, the secular approach of Turkey. Turkey is a democracy. And then I come here and I find myself as comfortable as I was in Turkey. However, I will say something very interesting to you. When I came here, I studied and then I found a job. And my first job was an investor relations manager in a boutique U.S. company whose president was Greek-American, and I'm Turkish. He was very open-minded. And I was supposed to supervise five male employees there. In Turkey, while I was working for Arthur Anderson, I was just an assistant. But even when I went to a board meeting, the board members would stand up because I was the female entering the boardroom. And they are older than me. They're mostly male or female. And then if there was a female supervisor, they would give her the uh, first word. In America, it was the opposite in my job. I was constantly downplayed by my subordinates that who were male. Why do you think that is the case on that? I heard of glass ceiling for women, but I didn't know how it would feel to really experience it until I was hired as an invest female investor relations manager in a boutique Wall Street investor relations firm. Wall Street is highly dominated by male. And being a woman there had many disadvantages, and I didn't believe it. I grew up in a country that was secular, in a way more secular than the U.S. How is that possible? It was possible. And it really was a struggle for me to understand and then to navigate, to surf through it. Thanks to my, the, the, thanks to the president, we worked it out. And then I had to really educate them. And I had to kind of train them about, you know, female, male. It doesn't matter. It's this leadership that counts. So, it was very different, but it was an eye-opener for me because I really didn't know what it meant. And still, to this day, many people, uh, many female uh, leaders even, they go through that. Do you think it has changed now? Because this was initial years, um, for you, initial years in the U.S. But now with Me Too movement and, and how women are perceived in, in the job market, do you think these things are changing or do you still see those stereotypes play out in, in some ways? It's definitely changing for the positive. And uh, uh, some of my friends, they don't like me, but I say Trump was almost like a blessing to us because I think it was Nietzsche who said, we are ruled by the way we deserve it. We needed an eye opener. We needed a wake up call. And that led to me too movement, as you said, and I see it in finance. I see it in the business world. And look at the, you know, Hollywood. It, it's all over, all over the news. And I'm glad to see the change for my own daughter because she's American. She's Turkish and American, and she's not going to have to go through those things. Maliki, I want to go back and trace your journey to America. You came here for education. You started working 
And then you decided to stay because you've been here for 25 years, right? Was it a conscious decision? Was it something, was it intentional? Because from what you, what I'm hearing, it wasn't a conscious decision initially, but what motivated you to stay back and, and not go to Turkey? Yes, that's a really great observation, Sadia. True. I wanted to get my education and go back to my country, which I missed so much from every point of view. Food, I missed it. <laughs> my friends, my family, the water, the Bosphorus, you've seen it. I was in the first city I went to was in, in Camden. There's no water, no sea, no ocean, just a river. And then I was looking around because you grow up with that. You wake up, you take the beautiful boat to go to the other side of the town, the city, because I lived in the Anatolian side and I worked in the European side. As you said, Istanbul connects two continents. And I lived in the suburb and I worked in the city in European side and I was enjoying that gorgeous blue water every morning, either via that beautiful bridge, like the San Francisco Golden Gate, we have Bosphorus Bridge, or by the water. So I missed everything. And I was dying to go back until I met my ex-husband. So through work, I met him. And that was the reason I stayed, because he wanted to stay. His work was here, established here. And then we had the babies. And then, you know, they grew up. It happened. And uh, it wasn't in the plan, but I'm glad it happened. And now I have those two beautiful children who are 13 and 15 years old. You said your ex-husband, so yes. you're not married to him anymore? No. I won't go into the reasons of why, but we'll move on to your work. So you report on global economic and business trends. In what ways has your background facilitated your work and how is it reflected in your work? And you've mentioned, like you've touched upon your culture and your warm. And, but when we look at like economic and business trends, it's, it's a different ballgame altogether. So has your background facilitated the way you approach your work? It does. And it did. Definitely. Yeah. So business news, Wall Street news, they're a little bit gray. You know, it's not as exciting news as talking about, I don't know, like you're, you're, what you're doing, immigration and immigrants. That's really exciting. That's a hot topic right now. And that's, a, that's interesting in terms of a greater purpose. But in Wall Street and the news, I try to make them as colorful and as educational as possible. Because after I finished my MBA and after I worked a little bit here, I started teaching because it's my passion. I love to teach. I love to educate. And then while I was teaching in auditoriums, I would have some icebreakers. I would talk about some analogies. I would ask the students what consumption means to them. Because, you know, 70% of the U.S. economy is consumption. And I would uh, ask their feedback. I would try to make it very interactive. And then I would draw, I would draw some conclusion into a certain cultural experiences because the U.S. is also very diversified. Not one single person is similar to another. But when I brought that to the TV, it was a total different um, experience. When I first started, I will never forget that, in January, on January 25, 2010, with uh, the Bloomberg HTV, one minute is eternity in live TV. Mm -hmm. So I start as 
70% of the um, economy is consumption. And they're like, caught, caught. They're, you know, yelling at my ear. I'm like, I just started. I want to make it interesting. They're like, no, you were supposed to just give the GDP. <laughs> did the GDP grow or did it fall? What, what happened? And I'm like, what? I, oh, how am I going to do it? Because I don't have a journalism background. I'm an economist by education. I'm a financial person. And I try to make it as colorful and as relatable as possible but how do I do it? That was a challenge on TV. So I still try to do that with my guests. We start with their coffee experience. Did you drink your coffee? Did you drink Turkish coffee? Or, okay, so it's spring outside, but is it spring in Wall Street? <laughs> Even though it takes two seconds, I still try to relate and then make my guests comfortable and welcome. And then I started. That's, I think, the hospitality that my mother and my dad gave me. And I, I believe it's, very interesting and important that sometimes people who are not from that particular background venture into those professions because they bring diversity of thought. I am a human rights activist and now I'm interviewing you and I have interviewed other people. And maybe the way I interview is not indicative or it's not, it doesn't represent the way other journalists may interview. But then that's the beauty of, you know, having this um cognitive diversity in workplace now. So if I were to ask you to describe one personal and one professional struggle over the years you've lived in the U.S. that molded you or shaped you, the person that you are today. Mm. So, uh, Sarya, I'm not only a TV reporter mm. and a CEO of a strategic consulting company, but I'm also a mother and a single mother in New York. Not having your family around, like in Turkey, is was a struggle. It is a struggle because I see all of my friends in Turkey or I still talk to them, meet with them. And uh, we went to college together. We went to Arthur Anderson. And then they grew up and they had their own companies or they became CEOs in multinational companies and they never had the struggle I had because in Turkey, still the mothers or the mother-in-laws take care of the children of their children, their grandkids. And that's such a big relief. Nobody can be a bit better babysitter than your own mother or mother-in-law. When I remember those days, I had to come to work, but my daughter was burning with fever and my babysitter was gone. She was sick too. So what do you do? You cannot ask your neighbors. They're working or they are not used to this kind of thing. And if you, it was Turkey, you would ask it, like 10,000 of your neighbors, not only your next door neighbors, but somebody would take care of your child. So that was a huge struggle. Work or babies or family. Like, what do I do? I didn't have a spouse to rely on or to pick up the slack. So not having my family around was the biggest struggle for me. And it still is. Yes, I do have my friends. And then it's almost like a family here. But in Turkey, family ties are so strong. Still is strong, even in metropolitan cities. Does your family visit you often, Maliki, from Turkey? Yes. Um, I, I mean, I lost my father in July. He came um, during the divorce period and then he supported me. But they, they're elderly and it, it, they have their own lives. They come here for, let's say, at maximum three months and then they had to go back. They don't speak the language. They don't drive here. 
And then you have to drive your children everywhere to their activities. So even though they come, it's not such a huge help. You still need a babysitter. And then I think I can write a book about babysitters. <laughs> I changed like 25 babysitters and each of them had their own stories. And I'm not alone. It's not only an immigrant's story. It's also the American family's story. It's in fact struggle that uh, working women and working moms face all the time. And that is why it's extremely important to have daycares at office. I would like to talk a bit about your um, company as well, because I I mean, you're a super mom. Uh, You are doing so many things at the same time, being a reporter, taking care of your kids and also running your own organization, um, Mel Strategies, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? And why did you start? this organization? What was the motivation behind starting it? Thank you, Sadia. By the way, I don't know if I'm a super mom because there's this mother that I want to be and there's the mother I am. There's the CEO that I want to be and then there's the CEO I am. There's a big gap in all of them. So I try to find optimal balance and it's not where I want to be, but it's, I don't, I hope it's closer. I try to really create a balance in my life with work, with family and also with my, you know, social responsibilities. Um, so my company, Mal Strategies, I founded it in 2012 while I was working as a part-time TV reporter at Bloomberg TV. And the reason I did that was I was taking care of all of my friends who were coming to the U.S. and then arranging road shows and arranging their meetings with the investors, potential investors, because they were, uh, let's say, Turkish companies that wanted to expand into the U.S. They were brands that wanted to expand into the U.S. and then test the markets here. So I was helping them with that. I was arranging buy side, sell side, and media meetings for them. And then I was doing it out of my heart as as a passion. And then a friend of mine who I was helping with, he said, why don't you capitalize on this? Why don't you incorporate? Why don't we have our own company? You will see there will be a bigger demand. And he was right. So as soon as I opened my own business, everybody started coming, word of mouth. And then I get such a joy of helping CEOs, supporting them. Either they are A-list or C-list CEOs, helping them help the bottom line of their company because. I'm an auditor and I'm a financial person. Yes, it is about media and marketing and PR and communications, but they need to help directly to the bottom line of their companies. And I would lo- I love to see their brands and their products and services grow. It's like a baby and I become one of them. They put me under their umbrella. They create business cards saying global communications director of X and Y and Z company of theirs. So I get a real joy out of that. So for listeners, if they where can they find information about your company? Is there a website they can go to? And if there is a social media presence that they can follow? Yes, there is. Uh, my website is uh, www.malstrategies.com. Like my first name, Mel, M-E-L, strategies.com. And also I'm uh, in social media, both because I'm a public figure as well, I combine those two. I have an Instagram and Twitter and a Facebook, and it's Melike Ayan. If you Google, you will find it. But it's also in my website. They can go directly to the website. We provide 360 degrees marketing services and needs for the company to be able to grow their brand. Melike, in today's divisive environment that we see in the U.S. Every immigrant has a story and every immigrant perceives U.S. a certain way. 
And again, I've had like 12, I've done 12 episodes so far of the Alien Chronicles podcast. And every immigrant has expressed their idea of what America is in different ways. If you ask me, honestly, I think, as I mentioned, America is an experience. That's what I was seeking when I came to the U.S. If you were to describe America in one word, how would you describe it? America in one word. Ah, I can actually describe America both as an in abstract and uh, in other form. America is education for me. It constantly educates you. In what ways? Oh my God, in diversity, in conflicts, in challenges. It grows you through this education, through the polars, through the opposite sides. It gives you such an education. You I have the self-education. Also, you have the collective education as a society. I feel like I'm part of America as well as I'm part of Turkey. I'm Turkish-American. That's my identity. So when I came here, I wanted to also give back to this country as well because I used education, I used the system, and I benefited from that. And it gave me that education, not only with the MBA that I had, also with the society. And I'm learning every single day. And and then the other word, the concrete word, would be coffee as the product. America is like coffee. You have you go to the supermarket, you see Colombian coffee, Ecuadorian coffee, Turkish coffee. It's it's a melting pot. But I wouldn't use melting pot for America. I would use coffee because you have the taste, the different tastes, different nationalities, different races, different opinions. You're absolutely right, because I think with coffee, you're saying that each one has its own distinct flavor, and yet it's it comes together. And that's what I absolutely love, your definition of America. <laughs> In terms of Turkey and America, both countries are dear to you. What are some of the similarities or differences that you see between the two countries? Because as I said, when I visited Turkey, Turkey is an extremely diverse space and there is so much to absorb and so much to learn there and I was there for a week but I I would highly recommend all my listeners if they are making any plans for summer vacation or before that do explore Turkey as an option what are the differences or similarities that you see between the two countries in the metropolitan cities you see a lot of similarities i guess it's this it's valid for almost all the metropolitan cities all over the world it's fast paced istanbul is fast paced it's a never sleeping city just like new york so you find yourself in the same environment those are the similarities and what's different oh oh my god food food i i miss it I, and <laughs> and yeah and then the history right you can go back BC. You can go back millions of years. America is a new country. It's a baby, and it's still developing compared to that. Some of my Turkish friends come and they say they go to Boston and then they see other tourists from other side of America and they say, "Oh my God, this is from 1700. This is old." For example, my house is from 1900, 1913. I just bought a house and then it's old, very old for Americans. Not that old for Turkish people. 
a friend of mine came and said, so what? I live in a house that was made in 1600. I'm like, great. So those are, <laughs> you see, history and culture and civilization is very different and older. And then the roots are there in Turkey and you still live it. And that's the beauty of Turkey. So this ends our first segment. We still have another segment, uh, which is the rapid fire round. I'll ask you questions and then you have to give me short answers, but it's like getting to know you even more. And I will start with my favorite question, which is like reading books or listening to music. Reading books. Give us an example of books that you like. Um, reading, listening right now to Eckhart Tolle, his new book, New Earth, Awakening to Your Soul's Purpose. What do you like about that book? Everything about awakening in ego and why we are really here for our soul's purpose in this life. If you could eat one food for the rest of your life, what would that be? Oh my God, that's a very difficult question for a <laughs> Turkish person because we love food. Ah, I love vegetables, but I love also manta. I, I think manta, Turkish dumplings. Yeah, I've tried those. They are delicious. You're absolutely <laughs> right. I could I could eat them for the rest of my life too. If you could only take three things to a deserted island, what would they be? My son, my daughter, my books. Hmm. Name three things on your bucket list. Oh God. My bucket list. I want to see Japan. <laughs> That's very difficult. Three that, right? Because I have like 3,000. I want to prioritize them. I really want to be able to see the, I, I didn't see everything in Turkey, all the caves, the old caves. I want to see every corner in Turkey. That's my number two. Can I add it? Absolutely. Uh, number three would be bucket list. I want to see my kids' kids. Is, would that count? Sure. Oh, <laughs> great. If you could have any superpower, what would that be? I want to be Wonder Woman. I really love that. Superpower. Everything she has, you want to have pretty that? cool. Yeah. You're moving forward failure. A failure that taught you a lesson so that you could succeed in life. My divorce taught me a lot. I grew up through that. Your biggest achievement? My children. <laughs> and if you were to describe yourself in three words? Never give up. Survivor. And ambitious. What's the best piece of advice you ever got? The biggest sin you can ever have is to lose your courage. That was written on the board of this SAT kind of an exam in Turkey. I read it when I was nine and it was it is embedded in my head. Your idea of vacation? Vacation? Turkey. <laughs> your all-time favorite movie? Uh, Coco. I loved it. I watched it and I will watch it over and over again. Best Turkish restaurant in NYC? Antique Garage. Oh, that's so difficult because I know the chefs and um, Ship Shock. Oh, best. You, Turkish Kitchen. Those three are number one in my list. I Turkish Kitchen? You, you said which ones? Because I, I really want to go there now. So, so Antique Garage. Mm -hmm. Ship Shock. It's on the east side. And the Turkish kitchen on the west side. Uh, Favorite emoji? Smiley face. Tea or coffee? Coffee. <laughs> Which one? Turkish or American? Turkish coffee. You know, there's a saying. One cup of Turkish coffee guarantees 40 years of friendship. What does that mean, though? So that means uh, it's a very old saying. It's a thousand-year-old tradition, they say. And it's the finest coffee, by the way, in the world. But 
When you sit down and then you make that Turkish coffee, which is a very patience, enduring experience because it takes time to make it, you serve it to your guests and that conversation, that joy, that pleasure you get out of that conversation is priceless and it will definitely guarantee 40 years of friendship. I should go back to Turkey and do that. Yeah, I, I do I, that here too, Sadia. You have to come I'll to my come house. To I'll house make Turkish then. coffee for Absolutely. you. Home is this earth. Melike, thank you so much for sharing your story. It was indeed so interest, interesting and we had so much fun learning about you and Turkey. Thank you. It was a great conversation interview. And I would like to thank all the listeners for joining us today. And please do subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to check out our website at www.alienchroniclespod.com. Again, if you have a story to share or any new ideas, you can contact us at info at alienchroniclespod.com. You can even send us questions that you want us to ask our guests, maybe even segments, suggestions for segments. I want this to be a very interactive platform, so do write to us. You can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Chronicles Alien, and you can find us on Instagram at The Alien Chronicles. Please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring to you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected. Stay connected.